scripture this morning comes from 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 through chapter 2, verse 2. If you would stand with us, scripture can be found on page 1210 of your Black Pew Bible. Again, 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 through chapter 2, verse 2. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk, walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in light and he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Good morning. It's good to see each one of you here and welcome you. And Shane's kind of sold it just a tad that, yes, this is a two-part sermon, but you should have seen him when he asked me what scripture to preach. He said, I need you to preach. First John, I remember exactly where I was sitting. It was Morgan's uh, reception, and uh, he said, I need you to preach First John 5 through chapter 2, verse 17, and I was like, you must not know how I teach. I don't understand. I, my small group would probably take offense to that. <laughs> uh, he was just a bit off, not chapter 2, verse 17, but chapter 2, verse 2, and it is Lord's Supper. We're taking of that, and so we batted that around a little bit, and it worked out that it's going to be a two-part sermon, so you give me two weeks in a row, but I hope it's a blessing. I know. No, it's been a blessing in my life. If you don't get anything out of it, I know I have. I've been transformed by the scripture this morning. And that's what we ask that the Lord do for us this morning is we read his word and we study his word that he transforms us into his image. And at this point, I'm going to dismiss our kids for children's church. Children, ages, what, second grade and under. I must not listen to that part. Second grade and under, if you'll come on down and join our teachers this morning. I know they've got something good prepared for you. Don't have many this morning. Everybody's out, but Riley Jane, come on down. You get one-on-one -on -one with Miss Pooh this morning. Uh, let go. They'll figure it out. First John chapter five or one verse five. First John chapter one verse five. The title of my sermon this morning is "Is Walking in the Light of the Gospel." To be part one, and next week will be part two. Today we're going to focus on one point. We'll get to that in just a second, but we're going to make a message out of that one point, one verse. Last week we looked at the verses one through four of 1 John, and we saw that Shane had introduced, and he saw that the false teachers, they had entered into the church in Asia Minor. We don't know what church John is writing to. We just know that he is writing to little children, to the believers, to a church, and these false teachers had crept in and they had presumably taught Gnosticism. That's what we surmise from his writing. And 
some form or fashion of Gnosticism as well as Docetism, and we'll get into those in the future as we make our way through the Scripture. But uh, they had distorted the person of Christ. That in turn, when you distort the person of Christ, it leads to a distortion of the gospel. And in return, it leads to a distortion of our faith. Some of the false teachers, they had taken with them some people that were inside the congregation. They had left and they had visibly, they had left these other believers and these believers were visibly shaken. So much so that they were questioning their salvation. Hence why John writes this epistle there was some question as to the person of Christ, as well as to the nature of the true gospel, and in fact, it goes to the nature of their saving faith. Whether indeed they had believed in the right gospel and entrusted in the true and saving Christ. And in response to this heresy, this false teaching, John writes this, this epistle. And he writes these things in order that they might know that they have eternal life and that they have fellowship with God. And the apostles, as well as fellow saints. He is wanting to impart confidence and assurance within their salvation to these shaken believers. He wants to impart confidence in their Savior, as well as the saving faith in which they are to have. John, he opens this letter in a way that you and I typically probably wouldn't deal with the doctrine of assurance. You and I would probably be inclined to open it in such that we'd be looking at the obedience of the faith. What kind of fruit we have coming out of the faith. And certainly John is going to get there. In fact, that's what we're going to study next week. And we're going to study throughout this, the fruit that the believer has. But that's not where John ministers first within the doctrine of assurance. John first, and he rightly sets upon the pedestal, he just says Christ is who we should focus on. He rightly puts Christ first in the doctrine of assurance. You see, the assurance of salvation is really an offspring of our faith. And, and the best thing that you and I can do to feed the assurance of our salvation is really to feed our faith. And what better, what nothing better to feed our faith on than Christ, than to look to Christ. Rather than looking at evidences of the faith, which there is a time for that. James talks about that. John ministers in a way that we should look to the object of our faith, that being Christ. So much of the modern gospel today has, focuses upon self. In fact, we don't have so much theology as we do meology. Listen to most sermons today from most, or a lot of today's pastors, unfortunately, and you're going to be quick to hear about you, but yet very little about Christ. In fact, we've seen in the past century or so, starting in the late 1800s, a shift in how the gospel is taught and proclaimed, shifting from a clear biblical perspective that a man can in no way earn his salvation to the point where we have erased the biblical words of repentance and obedience and submission in our preaching, and, and, and our faith has become merely an intellectual exercise. Instead of calling men and women to surrender to Christ, Modern evangelism has asked them to only to accept basic facts or tenets about them. A person can believe in Christ, yet they don't have to obey. The modern gospel invites people to make a decision or walk an aisle for Christ rather than repenting and trusting in Christ. It's become more of a transaction than a relation. And proponents of easy believism, or cheap grace if you will, they 
they teach the same fundamental error as the Gnostics taught. As that is, is, if you say you believe a certain set of truths, how you live your life doesn't matter. Ask anyone who calls himself an evangelical today, what is the gospel? We went through this a couple of uh, months ago. What is the gospel? And you're, you're likely to hear a myriad of, 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 of testimonies. You're likely to hear a myriad of answers. One, I think, is what you're going to hear most of the time when evangelism on the street is, is God is love. And because God is love, he loves me. Well, God is love. In fact, John is going to tell us that in his epistle. But he is also just. And God also wants to, God also has to, because he is love, punish sinners. But because we don't want to offend anybody, because the tone police will come out on Twitter or Facebook, or because we won't have someone come into our church, we don't, we don't offend them by preaching the true nature of the gospel, and that is man is a sinner and man needs to be saved. We, we, we leave out the severity of our sin and, and the obedient lifestyle that we're called to walk as Christians. It's a disease, ultimately, that has affected the church in a profound way, and I'm convinced that the lack of assurance, and I would even say false assurance, comes today, and even in John's day, stems from the fact that we have an inaccurate understanding of the requirements of salvation. We have an inaccurate view of our original sin. We trivialize sin. We have an inaccurate view of God's graces and His holiness. And we have an inaccurate view of the atoning work of Christ. In other words, bad theology can produce a false assurance and it also can produce a lack of insurance. Bad theology produces lack of assurance. In fact, just so you don't think I'm making this up, several weeks ago at the Southern Baptist Convention in Anaheim, this was saying upon the stage, at the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light and the burden of my mistakes rolled away. Mistakes? That's what we've relegated sin to is a mistake. No, mistake, it's not. It's a transgression against a holy and righteous God. John Calvin rightly states in his Institutes that man is never sufficiently touched and affected by the awareness of his lowly state until he's compared himself with God Almighty. What it boils down to is, is that God is sovereign and holy and man is not. And man does not want to confess sin nor answer to a sovereign Holy God, men, we have developed a philosophical and religious system in order to remove the necessity to confess their sins. It's going as far as even denying that sin even exists. Yet we know the laws of God, they're written upon the hearts of every man. Paul tells us that in Romans. And man, by his own conscience, knows the law of God deep down. So man, what we do is he tries to suppress the truth in all unrighteousness as much as he can, to the point where his conscience is seared. That's what we see in, in, in society today is a, is a seared conscience. You want to know why we're going off the rails? It's because we have seared our conscience. We have, we have not obeyed what God has asked us to do and what is implanted in our hearts. So man, he tries to suppress the truth. He does everything he can do to escape the indictment in the hope that in denying sin, he can therefore deny judgment. Bottom line, man loves his sin, and he wants no consequences for it. 
John MacArthur rightly states in his book, Reckless Faith, that the church today has lost its will to discern. It no longer distinguishes the true from the false Christian, and it no longer therefore is able to distinguish the true theology from false theology. He goes on, The new and inclusive evangelicalism wants to make everybody a Christian. Everybody. Not just those who name the name of Christ, but people who don't even know about Jesus Christ, but are trying to do their best somewhere in the world. That just opens up the church to its non-discriminating self-destruction. And he's right. That's what we've done inside modern evangelicalism today. But it shouldn't come as a surprise to us, right? Because this is what Satan likes to do. He just distorts the truth. I mean, we've done that. he's done that from the very beginning in the garden, that he's distorted the truth in some way. He wants people to believe something, anything, other than the truth about salvation, that it's in Christ. As long as the church is willing to, to, to tolerate any type of nonsense or, or pragmatic theater or any type of false theology in order to just get people in the doors, you're going to continue to see people question their faith. They're going to continue to question their salvation because they have not fed upon the object of their faith, the one who saves them, and that is Christ. And you look at the scene in most churches today, in most pulpits, unfortunately you'll find a lot of wolves and thieves who masquerade around as pastors in their congregations and they preach man-centered theology, but they don't preach God-centered theology. These thieves pervert the scriptures and they contradict the fundamentals of the faith, corrupting to the point of opposing it. It's no wonder people are not, don't know if they're saved or not. No wonder, because we have bad theology we focus on ourselves rather than upon Christ, but that's not what Paul says in Ephesians. I want you to focus on here real quick. Look at, look at Ephesians, and what does Paul focus on? Look at who you are and look at who you are in Christ, before you were in Christ and who you are in Christ. And he says, And you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, the fulfilling desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of love? No, we were children of wrath. But just as others, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through the faith, and that is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. For good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. If you want to focus on me and you, that's not good in the Scripture. We're children of wrath. But when we are converted, who do we focus on? Christ Jesus. From the Puritan Thomas Brooks in his book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, he writes this, We have all things in Christ. Christ is all things to a Christian. If we are sick, Jesus is a physician. If we thirst, Jesus is a fountain. If our sins trouble us, Jesus is our righteousness. If we stand in need of help, Jesus is mighty to save. If we fear death, Jesus is life. If we are in darkness, Jesus is light. If we are weak, Jesus is strength. If we are in poverty, Jesus is plenty. If we desire heaven, Jesus is the way. The soul cannot say, this I would have and that I would have. But having Jesus, he has all he needs, eminently, perfectly, eternally. Now you might say, well, Blake, why did you 
<laughs> sketch out the brief church history? Or why did you name out these, these deficiencies within the modern evangelicalism? Because there is consequence of our reduced view of the gospel and our watering down of sin. You see, it affects the way we pray. It affects the way we preach. It affects the way we teach. It affects the way we fellowship with one another. It affects the way we confess sin. It affects the way that we view our salvation. It affects the way that we have confidence, full assurance in Christ. It infects the entirety walk of the Christian life. And in this epistle, the Apostle John, he is devoted in truth. He is devoted to drawing the line right down the center. He is willing to draw the line in the sand. And he ministered these Christians in a way that warms the heart of the reader. Yet at the same time, the truth that he expresses causes us to stand in awe of him. John sees that some are saying they have fellowship with God, yet they walk in darkness. They say one thing, yet they live their lives a totally different way. It's interesting. John doesn't answer the question, how do I know my sins are forgiven? Or how do I know that I'm saved? The way that you and I would have him answer that. Or the way that I would answer it. No, as one author puts it, John sets forth the gospel in his book and he ministers in the area of assurance through a cosmic framework. And as you study this book, and hopefully by the end of our study, you're going to realize that I think the question that John sets before us today is that who are you in Christ? Who are you in Christ? John is concerned to show you what it means to be a Christian in the broadest and most magnificent sense. So rather than ask the question, how do I know that my sins are forgiven? I think we would be better to ask the question, what does it mean to be in union with Christ? So John sets out to provide a series of tests with which a church can determine who is in true fellowship with God. He provides these tests in order to refocus our mind, to recalibrate them, if you will, to deepen our theology, to grow our knowledge in the gospel, to comfort us so that we will have full assurance in Christ. John looks at the topic of obedience or the fruit in a Christian's life, and he looks to the test of the Christian's perspective upon sin. Before someone is truly converted, he or she must have a genuine, accurate assessment of their sinful condition. This is something we learned in our evangelism training, right? If you took our evangelism training, we learned what? Law before grace. Right? You can't be saved from something if you don't know what you need to be saved from. You can't be forgiven something if you don't have a clue what you need to be forgiven of. So it is that Christians have come under the conviction of their sins. They have stared into the mirror of God's Word and they have seen themselves as a wretched sinner. Every true Christian, they have confessed their sin to God, not only in their entrance to the narrow gate of heaven, but an ongoing, continual habitual basis in our walk with God. In our lives, there's a sensitivity towards sin. In the life of the Christian and the Holy Spirit, through a, through a painful process, he, he brings conviction to our hearts and to our minds of the sins that we commit. So one of the marks of a genuine Christian is that you confess your sin to God. Chris led us through a confession this morning, and next week we're going to talk even more about confession you see, the Gnostics, they did not confess sin. The, the Greek term for confess means to say the same thing. 
They didn't say the same thing about God did, nor did they even confess Christ, the true Christ. John confronts the Gnostics about sin. He says, in effect, that I don't care if they claim to be Christians and say they're in fellowship. They aren't because they don't say the same thing about sin that God says. A person has to know what God says about sin before being converted. And here's the test that John sets before us to know if someone is in true fellowship with the true God. And that is, what is that person's view of sin? What is that person's view of sin? The first test you see is if someone is in fellowship with God is to see their view of Christ. What's their view of Christ? Do they have a right view of Christ? Shane took us through that last week, right? That's where, Paul, that's where John starts. I apologize if I say Paul. It's just so easy. But he starts with Christ, rightfully so. He says, you've got to have a right view of Christ before you can even know salvation. It's got to be in the incarnate one, the one who came as God in flesh. But then he turns to the believer and he says, the test of sin. And we're going to walk through these tests that Shane preaches and the men preach, that you're going to see these tests and they overlap and they, they're like a spiraling effect and they just they broaden out, if you will. And he captures more and more each time. And, and John sets out and frames this test of one's fellowship with God with a foundational statement. And that's where we're going to park ourselves today is this foundational statement that we cannot overlook. It, it's, a, it's key to understanding the verses that's going to follow. So we don't want to miss that. And I want you to see first the divine message. The divine message. John says in verse 5, he says, This is the message we have heard from him and we announce to you that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. It's important to know that verse 5 is intimately tied to verse 4. If you read the Greek, you'll see that there's a subjunctive conjunction at the beginning, and that word is and. And so you could read it if, like this, so it could be read as, and this is the message. So he draws from verse 4 and verse 3. And what is it that we learned in the last time is, is that true fellowship, true communion is in Christ. True fellowship is in God. And this fellowship brings out this, this fullness of joy that John wants to, to, for us to, to commune with. As we commune with God, we have this fullness of joy. It's made possible by the Son of God. And this fellowship, once entered to, produces this fullness of joy. There's always been a people who attach themselves to the people of God. Confessing Christ, yet not possessing Him. And claiming they have fellowship and enjoy communion with God. But while this fellowship and communion are open and free to all partakers of the Holy Spirit, no regenerate person can participate in this communion. It's exclusive, not inclusive. So before John starts sifting out the wheat from the tares, he starts off with a clear foundational statement of the true nature of Christ. John says, this is the message. We, the apostles, have heard from Him. Who is Him? The Son of God, Christ. They, the apostles, have heard the message, a message that is epitomized in just a few words. God is light. Yet, let's not let us fool us, for this is really a summary statement of the gospel in full. This is not the only message that they heard. This is a summary of the gospel, basically. That God is light, and in Him there is no darkness. It's a message of great importance, of great significance. It's simple, yet so profound. Simple enough that a child could perceive its meaning, yet deep enough, so comprehensive that a lifetime 
of exposition is so impossible to believe. Note the word heard is in the present tense. John has heard it in the past, yet it is continually ringing within his ear. It's a message that endures. John has not just heard the message and has squandered it away as if it's his own little treasure and trinket. No, what does it say? He has heard it and they have announced it on a gallo. It means to proclaim what has been received elsewhere. John isn't, it's not, this is not John's message to proclaim. It's Christ's message. It's not like the Gnostics who said they have the knowledge. It's their message to proclaim. No, John says, it's not my message. I just proclaimed the message. He doesn't have the authority to change the message. You and I don't have the authority to change the Word of God. No preacher has the authority to change the Word of God. It's a divine message that has been stewarded with Him as well as us to proclaim His message, His Word. And the message we've already said is that God is light. When John says that God is light, he is referring to God's nature, such as God is love. We're going to find out chapter 4. We're going to go over that. And, then he said, and then later on, he's going to say that God is spirit. Chapter 4 and chapter 8. John wants us to know who God is, not just what God does or has done or will do. He focuses on God as the foundation for what is to come, and he focuses on the reality that God is light. Light, in one sense, refers to God's absolute truth, to his moral purity, and to his holiness. In other words, he is the source and measure of all that is true. Another way to put it would be to say that nothing is truly understood until it is understood in the light of God. But, I don't want us to miss this point this morning. That I believe he goes beyond speaking of just the nature of God. Remember, fellowship, communion. We draw this in, right? We've got to understand it within its context. And I think it has to be viewed in these contexts. In fact, Jane, Shane uh, talked about this last week. Was, is he, this, this is so eerily similar, yet different, to John's gospel. In 1 John, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through Him, and nothing has come into being that is, nothing's come into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. What does he say? The light has come. The light has come. John, he hearkens back in, early on to all the way to eternity past, right? That's what first John, or John 1 is talking about. All the way to eternity past where the Word was with God. He was with Him in eternity past. And the Word was God. And through the Word, all things came into being. Through Christ, all things came into being. In which creation was spoken into existence and light shone upon the face of the earth. And in this word was life, and then we see this life was the light of men. John draws upon the metaphor of light throughout his gospel. And he brings it into his epistle as well, the light. But what I don't want to miss is, is that I believe he draws upon an Old Testament event. Turn to Isaiah, if you will. Isaiah chapter 9. He draws upon an Old Testament event of this light, this invasion of light that is coming into the world. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. It's on the screen if you don't have your Bible. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun 
in the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Matthew, in his gospel, chapter 4, verse 12 through 16, says this prophecy right here was fulfilled in Christ. Christ is the light. And in chapter 42, verses 6 through 7, and in chapter 49 of Isaiah, verse 6, he says this, speaking of Yahweh's servant, who he is pleased and delight in, he says this, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved one of Israel. I will also make you, this is speaking of his servant, the suffering servant, I will make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. It's not that he's going to be just a light to Israel, but he is going to be a light unto the nations. Abrahamic covenant, anyone? John records for us Jesus' words in John 8, verse 12. Well, excuse me, John picks up the theme in the gospel. In John 3, he says this, in the Nicodemus chapter, right? He says this, This is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. The light has come, right? And John records for us in Jesus' words in John 8, 12, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have what? The light of life. He says in John 12, verse 46, that he is coming as light into the world, so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. So John has picked up this theme, this Old Testament theme of light from Isaiah and from the Old Testament prophets, and he has brought it into his gospel. And he is saying, in essence, that the light has come. The light has come into a sin-depraved world. It needs light, and he is here. He is here. And he offers eternal life. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul tells us that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving in order that they might not see what? The light. What light? The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. He has done that. He has blinded their eyes. The light which is God is conveyed to us through the glory of Christ by the means of the gospel, and it is what shines into the heart of men and it exposes darkness. And in this light, you have life. You have salvation. John says, look, the light, the utter essence and being of God was prophesied. He was foretold of by the prophets, and now he is here. So John proclaiming that God is light, he also proclaims that Christ is light. And guess what? You and I, because we are in fellowship with God, we are light as well. Colossians 1.12 The Father, being God, has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in what? Light. 
He goes on to say, For He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and now into the kingdom of light. Ephesians 5 says, Now you are light of the Lord. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, God has called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. Jesus in Matthew 5.14 says that you are the light of the world. And so what is light? It says John said in 1 John or John 1 that it is life. Light equals life. Light equals life. Life equals light. In John 1, we see that he, he equates these two words. When it comes to really the physical and temporal life that Christ gives us, uh, to the, that he imparts to the created world through his involvement as the agent of creation. But John, he, he says this light has been, has, has, has been, has, has been transferred into the, every, everybody's life, and so that it enlightens everyone. Everyone has been enlightened, yet they have not seen the truth. He's planted enough to where you can be held responsible. But then, John in chapter 3, in the Nicodemus chapter, he goes a step further, and he says this light is the source of our spiritual life. It is eternal life. Verse 14 of chapter 3, As Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in Him shall have eternal life. John 3.16, you know it. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believe in Him shall have eternal life. He's not only the agent of creation and gives us light. He's not only enlightened every man so that they're held responsible, but He is also the one who gives eternal life. It's about life, not physical life. You and I have that. We have physical life, right? But not all of us have eternal life. Eternal life is what we need. We need to be saved. We need to have the spiritual light. We need the light to shine into the darkness. And then John shifts the language a bit in verse 9. 19, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world. The source of eternal life, the light has entered. So John just uses the different words for the same thing. Light, life, salvation, eternal life. They're all synonyms. Christ is not only the source of life, He gives eternal life. When you believe in Jesus Christ, the light of the world, you receive not just information, not just illumination, but you receive immediately eternal life. Something you currently have right now. This is what Christ came to do. This is the invasion of light, to give eternal life. So when we read that God is light, I hope that it paints a whole different picture of us than we just than that God, this is His nature. Absolutely. It is 100% that is what John has in mind here as well, is that not only is God truth, not only is He morally pure, not only is He holy and the standard of perfection, but He is the giver of life. And this, is, I believe, is what John is concerned with, that you have eternal life because the light has shined into your darkened heart. He positively asserts that God is light, and then he negatively asserts that in Him there is no darkness at all. What does that mean? Well, it's the opposite of light. right? It, it, it's contrary to life. God is absolutely perfect in His being, in His character, in His words, in His deeds, in His actions. In his thoughts and his motives, there is no fault in God. In fact, in the Greek, it's a double negative, if you will. Doubling down on the fact that there is no fault to God at all. And since God the Father, here's the point, and since God the Father and Christ are light, 
and no darkness and no death, because we know death brings we know darkness brings about death, right? And no death inhabits them. And since we have been given that life, and the characteristics of this life then are not darkness, they're not lies, they're not sin, but the characteristics of our lives, because we are in Christ, are to be righteousness and holiness and obedience, devoted to doctrinal truths and godly living. And those who possess this life are those who walk in the light, as we will learn next week. We're going to talk more about those walking in the light. The, the possessor of the light follows in obedience, and he doesn't walk in darkness. That's a very important point for John, because if you say that you're a possessor of light, that you have received eternal life, then what we should know about you is that you are devoted to the truth and to righteousness, because that is the essential nature of that eternal life which God imparts. And John, throughout his epistle... He's going to paint for this picture, this broad uh, spectrum of the most magnificent gospel there is. It's broad. Uh, of how we're to walk in the light of the gospel. You see, the closer you walk with God, the more light exposes sin. The greater your theology, the greater your understanding of sin. And if you say you have life, what's your attitude towards sin? Do you have God's truthful and holy hatred of sin? If not, then it could be that this morning that you're deceiving yourself. If you say you have life, are you walking obedience with Him? Are you regularly confessing sin on a daily basis? By this you show evidence that your heart is alive to the light of the gospel. By this you show that you are a son or a daughter of light. So we think through these truths today, and we think through the, that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness. We're called to examine our lives. That's what John sets out to do in his epistle, to test our lives, to examine our lives. But ultimately is, who are you in Christ? Have you entered into the kingdom of light today? Through the Son who provides redemption and forgiveness of sins. Or are you still in darkness, walking in unrepentant sin, without a Savior, without hope in eternal life? If you can't sit here today and say, I hate my sin." I see what my sin does to me. I see what my sin does to my neighbor and to my family. I see what my sin has done to my holy God. If you cannot sit here and say that today, then you're walking in darkness, and in you is no light. If you can't say the same thing about sin that God says, then you don't have the life of God within you. Because if the life of God were in you, your inner being would be saying the same thing about sin and the truth that God says. And he says, repent today. He says, trust in Christ. Surrender to the light who has come to give you eternal life. For he wants to give it to you. I seek those who are lost and I save. And he had, takes deep pleasure in that. One of my favorite hymns is by Charles Wesley. Can it be that I should gain? And it portrays the power of light to dissolve the deep darkness in the heart of a lost soul. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart set free. I rose went forth and followed thee. Can you say that today? 
Can you say that your chains have fallen off? Can you say that your heart has been set free? For us Christians today, it's a mighty day. We can glory in that we have communion with Christ. We have communion with the one who came to take away our sins. We have communion with the God of the universe. May we rejoice in that today. Is there unconfessed sin in your life? Confess that today. Confess it. For you give evidence that you walk in the light. Are you struggling with your assurance of salvation? Look to Christ. Study the person of Christ. Take the eye off you and look at who your salvation is in. One of the reasons that we come to the Lord's table is to confess sin. We get to examine our lives. We get to hold our lives up to the mirror of Scripture. And we get to be exposed by the light. Nobody likes to be exposed. That's our flesh, right? But as Christians, we want to be exposed. God exposed those sins that are deep in my heart. In God's infinite wisdom, He commanded us to take of the Lord's Supper in order that we may remember Christ and His sacrifice and so that we are regularly reminded of our sin and need for a Savior. Christ, He invites us to the table today to commune with Him, to sup with Him. What a glorious thought. The meal is one of two ordinances that we've been given a command to take, the other being baptism. It's very simple. It's symbolic. There's no power to the bread or the juice. There's nothing that transforms you in this. It's symbolic. It causes us to look to Christ, though, and away from ourselves at times, but it also causes us to examine ourselves and to see the wretchedness in which we are. This remembrance meal is open to all Christians, men and women who have repented of their sins and put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. To all those who have heeded the invitation, come to me, all who are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's who can take that today. Who's given over their lives to Christ. Here at Beaver, we, we offer an open table, open fellowship. What does that mean, though? We've got to set boundaries. That means if you're a Christian one who has repented and of their sins and put their trust in Christ, then you are able to take this meal with us. It's open to us. The Bible clearly teaches that before eating and drinking of the meal, the believer must properly examine himself. It includes a self-inspection of oneself as well as a self-inspection of the table elements. What do these represent? And when we do this, we remember His sacrifice and, his, and we rejoice in His provision. It's hope today that this message has caused us to examine our lives. Chris has led us in a time of confession. If you have sin in your life, now's the time to lift it up to God. He's the only one that can take it away. There are some people who should not eat and drink this meal to, with us today. We've got to put a fence around it. This is through Scripture. The primary reason is that they'll be adding to their guilt before God. One of the key claims we make in this meal is that we belong to Christ. 
that our salvation depends upon Him and Him alone, that He is our only hope and that He is our personal Savior. The meal symbolizes these things. So it would be disingenuous, if not a right-out mockery, of God to eat and drink the symbols if there's really no reality behind the substance. So those who know they're Christian, who are unsure of their conversion, who are children incapable of understanding the significance of the ordinance, or who claim to be Christians yet are walking in open rebellions against God by refusing to stop sinning, you must not take it. For you don't want to bring any more guilt upon yourself. Do not eat and drink judgment upon you. We do, however, want you to stay and watch, for there is much to learn from this. Many wonderful things to hear. Our prayer for you is that you look and you listen. God will open your heart to receive Christ as your Savior, and nothing, I promise you, would make me happier and every one of the saints happier this morning, that you trust in Christ.